Hi everybody, welcome to another Prog Report podcast interview. This is Roy. A great interview today from a band you may or may not have heard of. They are from Finland. They are called Wheel. They have a brand new album on the way called Resident Human out on March 26th. Pleased to welcome the singer from the group, James Lascelles. Hello. Good to uh, finally meet you. It's funny, I was. I feel like I've been listening to, to this record now for months. <laughs> Yeah, well, me too. It just feels to go on forever. And I think that the entirety of last year was consumed by it. And um, it's, it's kind of surreal because in a way, I'm kind of over it now. And I'm trying to think about what we're going to do next. Uh, we got the first review tentatively last night from a Mexican publication. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and they loved it, which was really great to see. So um, yeah. it's kind of a scary bit at the moment where I'm thinking, OK, I know that I'd buy this, but Let's see how the media reacts, because if they like it, then it's going to do well. And hopefully it will mean we have new opportunities. And if it doesn't, then back to the drawing board and let's hope album three is the one. So, you know, it's hard to tell right now. Yeah, <laughs> all of that kind of what's success nowadays. I want to ask you about that, actually, being being a, a sort of a newer, younger band um, and trying to make it. And then you get thrown into uh, the COVID thing, which, you know, doesn't help anybody. Um, especially when you're trying to start out, you know, that's, that's not good, <laughs> but you know, that's an um, understatement and I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, but let me ask you first. So where are you, are you, you're in Finland? Is that, is that kind of where you live now and, and where you've been living? And yeah, I've been here for 10 years. I moved here 10 years ago because I was playing in bands in the UK and I graduated from university, uh, the bands weren't being taken particularly seriously, and I think some of the other members just weren't that into it. And um, I think I kind of convinced myself with that process that there was no kind of future for me doing this kind of music with Wheel, this kind of heavy prog stuff. And uh, I had an opportunity to move to Finland. I was flying back and forth from here in the UK 10 times within a year to play with a guy who won Idols in Finland, um, who I'd known when I was a student. And it was just playing acoustic guitar and singing this... Uh, they're kind of like a faux Mumford and Sons, kind of uh, just really not particularly original or interesting pop music. And um, I was just grateful for the work. It was paying the bills and um, it was an opportunity to keep playing at a time when I thought I was going to quit and do something else. But it, it was just a bit soul destroying. I think um, I've always been very bothered about authenticity and sincerity and it didn't feel like it had much of either of those things. So um I think, uh, and financial reasons too, like uh, towards the end of it, I realized that, you know, I'm completely broke and uh, this band feels increasingly like a pyramid scheme. It was very focused on <laughs> right. So um, I, I left that maybe six years ago now and um, met the founding members of Wheel and, and started making stuff that I really cared about, just with the premise that, do you know what? I don't care who wants to buy this or not. I just want to make stuff I actually give a shit about. So then at least I speak to someone like you about it. I can look you in the eye and tell you, yes, I think this is good. I think it's art and has a value. And yeah. um, and that's been feeling pretty nice moving forward. It, it You know, I find how so many times it works out like that for all, all various musicians. I, they're like, well, you know, trying to make it big wasn't working. Let me try to do what I really like playing. And then that ends up being, you know, the, the thing that works, which is always it's always great when it works out, but, um, uh, I, I want to ask you about yourself. I mean, how did you get into being a musician going back from starting out, you know, or wanting to be a singer? Were you always a singer? Did you start up playing the drums or, you know, how did it, how did it begin? 
when I was very young, I had piano lessons for a while, and um, I eventually got a very cheap nylon string guitar that I think cost about £30 back in the 90s. It was a, a wonderful piece of crap. I'm pretty sure it's still in my parents' attic somewhere. Um, and I always got in trouble for hitting it too hard and wanting to play with a pick rather than with my fingers. Um, and then slowly I started to discover um, the stuff that was cool in Britain at the time, like Oasis and The Verve and these other guitar-based bands. And the, I think the first big turning point was when I heard Nirvana. And um, a lot of people who I knew were really excited about the, the Nevermind album, which has some amazing songs on it. But in all honesty, the produced sound wasn't really my thing. I think it's a bit too clean for that band. Uh, I really liked the, the dirty sounding stuff like Bleach and Incesticide and mm. Utero. And, you know, the noisier, the better. Like Stuff like Hairspray Queen and Beeswax, you know, those were the songs that were really speaking to me. Just this chaotic, noisy, angry, emotional um, outburst that I think Nirvana were really the best at doing in their genre. Like, their pop music was excellent. It was really, really good. But nothing sounds like those songs still. Um, and I think that really connected with me. So I started playing in bands. And um, originally I was just on guitar. And um, I started singing when we had, it was either a gig or some school performance at a talent show or something. And uh, it's so far back. I think it was a talent show. And uh, the singer decided not to do it. So I said, fuck it. How hard can it be? I'll give it a go. And turns out pretty hard. I was completely shit. Um, I had guitar lessons for maybe uh, a year at one point, um, but by a guy called Brian Parker, who'd had some affiliation with Cliff Richard and the Shadows back in the days. He was a lovely man. Uh, but that's the only kind of formal tuition I've ever had. With the singing, I was screeching like a banshee for a while, and then slowly it started to become more musical, and I've been doing it as my job for my entire adult life. So I'm not really sure how it happened, and I guess the only... Uh, that's really funny <laughs> that um, one of the biggest inspirations for you was Nirvana. Uh, and, and certainly there's a lot of bands that were inspired by them that are now making music today. But... You know, wheel almost seems like the polar opposite, right? So, uh, I mean, I mean, sort of the angst is there, which I think you guys are trying to get across. But, um, but there, it is kind of very clean, and the production is incredible, and it's longer songs, and it's more intricate. It really seems like the opposite. So, how did you make that shift into into this kind of music? That's a really fair comment, and, and I think there's a much kind of wider dynamic range we're trying to encompass in Wheel, and particularly like you mentioned with the song lengths. I think also with, with just guitar tones and stuff, like there are songs that are deliberately gentle. We even did an acoustic track at one point, and uh, just trying to have this whole spectrum of what the band can be. But I, I think the um, when I discovered Tool back in my late teens, um, that was the next kind of pivotal moment for me. Um, not in terms of this kind of almost fundamentalist following they've developed, um, where, where people are so passionately into the maths of their music and um, and I guess that the messaging behind it and the presentation and the style, which is all great. But the stuff I found the most impressive was always arrangement and structure. And I think they were doing stuff with that back in the mid-90s that no one else was touching. And uh, it, it was like they were pioneers into this brave new world. And I think that was always appealing to me because... You're looking at all these other bands with one guitarist, a bassist, and a drummer. And a lot of them sounded pretty similar. You know, um, I think the British indie rock movement, there was definitely a very safe 
common thread and common path people are following. I think the same could be said for the, um, well, I guess, the alt-rock of the time, uh, although I love a lot of that stuff. And um, I think it was just the, the, the boldness to go, uh, no, fuck that, we're going to try something else. And really following that thought um, very, very far down the path before assembling it into a, a finished song. And uh, that was what got me into prog. And um, that was around the time I discovered metal and started listening to stuff like Pantera, who I still think are fantastic. And, um, and more of these heavier rock bands from that time. Uh, later on with the prog stuff as well, I, I discovered the Mars Volta in the early 2000s. And just, um, I think that they are fucking incredible. Like one of the most underrated guitarists in music, really interesting sound design and great lead parts, which, um, are really off kilter and constantly surprising. So, so there was a ton of great stuff around that time. I think all of it just encouraged me to experiment with all these variables and find my own road. Yeah, but for me, and I just want to ask you about some of these bands because I, I actually really liked the uh, the Brit alt rock scene from the early two thousands. Because here in the US, doubt in in the early two thousands, I think that was the worst rock period here <laughs> I, it was there was nothing i liked i mean i knew some bands dream theater was still around you know some of these bands that were they were still making some music which was cool all the all the decent bands from the grunge movement were kind of done i think i don't know what even i can't even remember and i and so i got into like that was the first coldplay record which i got i got into them i liked uh, i mean oasis certainly was good a band uh, I like Travis, um, athlete. I don't know if you know them. They were really cool. I haven't um, thought of that in a very long time. Yeah, they had a few good songs. Definitely. Yeah, and uh, uh, what was another one? Um, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, yeah, I liked all that. All of those bands. That was a really. I thought more, way more interesting. I mean, it wasn't heavy rock, but I thought it was way more interesting music for a period there. I think you've got a point, and uh, I think you can even throw Radiohead in with that brush. Oh, yeah, Radiohead, of course, yeah. For such sure. a radical career, and they're still a massive inspiration to me. Um, another great example of a band who just keep you guessing, and they do one thing, and they think, okay, we've done that. What should we do next? And they, they go completely over here. And um, I love the fact they've they've never really seemed that bothered about maintaining their fame. They've always been artists first. You know, it's a, a fascinating thing for me about Tool also, while we're, we, you know, you were talking about them, and I definitely hear an influence uh, in your music for, from them for sure. Uh, well, they're a band that actually found this massive fan base, but if you go and talk to a lot of their fans, they don't know anything about progressive rock. They don't like progressive rock. They don't like any of the bands. But Tool is like their favorite band. And I always found that is the most fascinating thing to me about them is that you try to show somebody, no, but look, here's Genesis and Dream Theater and all that. It's like the same family. And they're like, no, that's all rubbish. That's terrible. We like Tool and Nirvana. It never made sense to me. I think that's a really legit point. And I think part of it is the aesthetic. I think that Tool's presentation in terms of sound design and visually is just exceptional. They've got this really unique sound, even when they're doing just ambient noises. It's got this real Tim Burton vibe to it. There's something kind of horrible um, and also kind of retro, but also something which is kind of, it's just completely out of the normal and there's no one who really has that exact same aesthetic. I think also the thing that connects Nirvana and Tool for me, it's never complex for its own sake. 
when it uses complexity or when it's busy, it's because the song demands it. For example, in that song, Rosetta Stoned, when the, the part starts with that um, crazy bass line and drum groove with the guitar solo in the, about you know, halfway through the song, um, if you try and analyse what's going on on the drums there, which uh, I've never bothered because I just enjoy it so much, it, it, it's fucking wild. Like it, it's, um, it's a rudiment, I understand that, and, and the bass part is this kind of simplicity that makes the drum part more palatable. If you heard the drum beat on its own, it would just sound like this uh, almost busy nonsense, but the context is delivered in. Yeah. I think it makes it sound so enjoyable. And, and maybe that's the difference. Is these other bands like, like Dream Theater, for example, there are parts of it where it's clearly they go, fuck it, should we do a bit here where we go, and yeah, that's really cool, let's put that in. And so you can tell that they love virtuoso playing, and that's something they really enjoy. And um, that's never something Tool have tried to do. Tool do a guitar right. solo. It might be three notes, but it's all about the mood it creates. No, yeah, that, yeah, it is. You're right. I think that is. I think that is a lot. A lot to do with it. it. They don't. The length of the song is not the point, right? So exactly. Yeah. Um, about the well, we should talk about the new album, uh, Resident Human. <laughs> We've talked about everything else but that. Uh, comes out March 26th. Uh, some. I mean, it's really cool from the first couple of notes. From the opening track, that kind of clean guitar, it right away you're like, "Oh, this is this could be cool." It's, I think it's really neat. Just it's just a little kind of arpeggio guitar thing, and right away you're it it just makes it sound already like it could be something kind of interesting, which I think is is difficult to do. It catches your attention really quickly from very little. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it was um, a challenge to make, and I think there were we've made so many leaps of faith during the the process of putting the things together. Um, a particularly scary point was in Hyperion when when we were tracking the drums and bass. Sunday, our drummer just said, "This feels like we're forcing it. Let's just turn off the click and see what happens." And uh, we were looking at the number of days we had left in the studio, thinking, "Okay, we don't have time to redo this if it goes wrong, or at least if we do, it's going to cost us a lot of money." So. Uh, Fuck it, let's roll the dice and see what happens. And I'm so glad we did because during the process, we've uh, we've been touring a lot the year before we made this album. And I think that's the main difference between making Resident Human and making Moving Backwards. We had this uh, this kind of new vision of of how we sound because um, before that we've mainly just been you know working in a studio and rehearsing and then tracking stuff. And at not so many shows before we made that album. But after that, we've been playing on stage every night for, you know, however many shows it was in 2019, like 100 gigs in a year. Wow. And um, that we really got used to this kind of dynamic feeling of, of where the groove lies because we're not using backing tracks and we're not using clicks live. We're, we're just kind of feeling out and following the person with the most crucial part at any one point. And normally that's the drums, but there are bits where it follows the guitar, whatever. Uh, and just kind of this push-pull relationship. For example, um, stuff I've never really thought about before, like if you dip the tempo in the right place by about 5 to 10 D, um, BPM, it sounds bigger and heavier. And Nirvana, weirdly enough, use this a lot. Like since I've been diving back into their stuff, but a song like School, for example, um, on their very first album, uh, I think uh, in the verse, in this, that part, it's really pushing. It's pushing, pushing, pushing. When it gets to the chorus, you can feel everyone take sort of a step back and it just makes it sound bigger and wider and heavier. Um, so we've really started leaning on that. But when it goes into the guitar solo in Hyperion, the tempo drops by something ridiculous. It's almost like the start of Since I've Been Loving You by Led Zeppelin, 
But you know, they hit the snare and the tempo drops by something ridiculous, like 40 right. BPM. Uh, and I guess just thinking about that as, as part of the journey in a day and age where you can edit every single hit. And if you want to make a perfectly mathematically correct, uh, almost an algorithmic song, where you're flattening every pitch, you're compressing everything to the point where there are no dynamics so that it can be audible in all systems, and every single hit is lined up on a grid. Um, choosing to keep that humanity has been a very deliberate choice from the production side from the offset, and particularly because of the like, lyrical topics on the album, we felt it was a really good fit. And I've got to admit, it was fucking horrible. It was so scary kind of making yourself that vulnerable and kind of thinking, okay, I can hear myself picking the string with the pick there in the wrong way. Fuck it, let's leave it in. We want it to sound like someone playing guitar. Um, right. you know, making those kind of choices, it's kind of counterintuitive because it's like hearing your voice back when you're when you're talking well, into I mean, a microphone. It, it make it does. It's funny because it because what you're saying, the vulnerability, the lack of a click track, all that kind of stuff that might lead to um, more noisy kind of results or parts that maybe sound off or messy or something like that it doesn't that doesn't come out at all i mean it's it's done so perfectly that it i you could have told me you played to a click track i would have said sure i mean it sounds completely right on point throughout the whole thing the rhythms i mean your music is very rhythmic and it's all all in line really well i had I, that didn't come out you know in a bad way i mean it it, it works is what i mean well, thank you very much. I mean, it's just to be super honest about that, like, there are songs we use the click track in, like oh, movement, okay. that, that's so busy and kind of, we thought uh, it's just going to sound messy if we don't put one in. And, uh, you know, somebody chose when to follow that religiously and when to just sort of let it fly a little bit. Right. And I think you can feel that in the groove. Like yeah. there are parts where it sort of kind of pushes and it pulls back, but there's still this rigidity to the overall tempo. Um, in Dissipating, the first track you mentioned with the pain intro, uh, we programmed for click tracking that. So there are parts we knew we wanted it to step back mm. and there were parts we wanted it to accelerate at very specific points. Uh, so we, we kind of tried lots of different ways of um, articulating and defining that tempo, and that, that sense of movement. And it just really depended on the song. And uh, I think it's like any other kind of art, isn't it? I mean, once the song exists and it's this thing that isn't just an idea, it's a tangible thing which you're playing. I think it kind of takes on a life of its own and just listening to what that demands is probably the right thing to do in any given scenario. Yeah. I got to ask you about the video for movement, which is just the most intense, crazy thing. Um, whose idea was that? And, uh, you know, were you, were you involved in, in the creation of that at all? Or, or is it just something you saw afterwards and were, and, and were you just like shocked by it also? I was absolutely involved in the production of it. And I think to talk about that, I need to give us some context about what the song's about first. So uh, movement, um, the idea came to me after George Floyd was murdered in the United States and specifically the rhetoric that happened afterwards. Uh, we saw, you know, a lot of conflation and false equivalence, this toxicity, this oversimplification of uh, a, a very complex thing, you know, how do you end police brutality in a system um, which clearly has some degree of racial bias? We can argue about how much of that racial bias is economic and geographic, but you know, still, um, it, it seems that there is need for reform in a situation where um, regular citizens can be killed and then lie about it and be protected by unions and whatever else. 
Um, so following that line of thought, um, one of my favorite comments I've heard about it is being in a free society should mean that you can be a deviant, you can be a drug addict and still expect not to be murdered by the police. And I think that's the case in point. That there's no way I think you can really explain away what happens in that scenario. And the video evidence, it's really clutching its straws when you try and minimize the fact that this was an innocent man, um, as far as we're aware, who was murdered in broad daylight while the public watched and filmed the event happening. Uh, but but anyway, it's, it's not about the murder itself, it's about the rhetoric that followed afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, and I think just seeing how how factionalised we became and how partisan the issues became, how we ended up throwing it in with all this extra shit on either sides. And you know, bearing in mind, you know, I'm pro-change to prevent this kind of stuff happening. Even uh, on the side that was for change, there was some terrible branding. Defund the police is a terrible slogan. If you want to engage with someone on the opposite side, even though defund the police has some really good ideas in it, Things like let's put more social workers in our system, which are going to interact with homeless people. Let's get regular mental health care checkups for police. The second anyone who disagrees with you has heard the title of your presentation, they already want to disagree with you. So uh, it's a crappy title. Yeah. And so again, you end up with this, this, this uh, fiery slinging match where online we just saw people saying terrible, terrible things to each other, completely strawmanning each other's arguments over and over again. And basically circling around in our own echo chambers, becoming increasingly outraged until everything fizzled out. And the next thing to be furious about appeared in the media, like it happens every fucking time. Um, And the video was kind of trying to be the opposite to that. So online, you've got these faceless people, you've got these avatars saying terribly toxic things to each other in a way they wouldn't do if they were interacting like you and I are right now. And the video was trying to do the complete opposite. You take a human face, you take something extremely vulnerable, personal but they're not saying anything. All of the communication, all of the mood, this whole, uh, what's the right word? I guess the, all the different masks we wear when we interact um, through our behavior. Um, when you're looking at a person's face, I think you're a lot more empathetic towards the fact this is a person on the other end of this interaction, even without the words. And because it, this is a global phenomenon that keeps happening and the, the echo chamber situation is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, especially since the uh, the left-wing corporations, one of the dumbest titles, again, it's right up there with defund the police. Uh, you know, I think they're, they're mainly interested in making money would be my guess. But anyway, um, since they've been kicking off right-wing people, um, particularly over the last two or three months, we're really seeing a split down the middle where there's going to be a rise now in completely politicised social media, where some is catering to left-leaning people some is going to cater to right-leaning people. And I think that's only going to exacerbate the problems we already have, because even though there have been echo chambers and algorithmically defined microcosms, now there isn't even the natural meeting point of we're both using Facebook, you know. You end up with, uh, there's no point in the middle to meet. And I guess the video is trying to communicate that. That's intense, man. You, you really thought that You really thought that out. Listen, I don't, I don't want to get into a whole, you know, direct political discussion of it, but... But you clearly, I mean, you're aware of a lot of the stuff going on in the U.S. And I guess that that's affected, um, you know, all over the world, right? I mean, it's it's it, it seems like it's seen a lot of this stuff is, you know, global problems, I guess. And that's you, you're tapping into that. That's absolutely true. I mean, um, this particular issue, of course, you've got very different issues with um, with police force and with racism in the U.S. what we have in Europe. I just think uh, it was such a global event and um, 
I remember watching the footage, it was just so moving, you know, I'm obviously in tears after I saw that, and I'm not much of a crier, just because um, you can really feel this man's pain and his suffering, and, uh, you know, seeing how his family was spoken about afterwards, it's, um, it's heartbreaking. And um, it, it's rare you kind of get this window into an event like that happening in such a, in, in a way where you can really see what happens, even just through the window of someone's mobile phone. So, yeah, that really spoke to me. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it's been a, a, a crazy time and uh, uh, for everybody uh, around a lot of things. How have you been dealing with um, the, uh, you know, the COVID and, and quarantine and all of that? And how has that affected you guys as a band? You know, I know you had plans to tour and, and a lot of things that you were going to do to push the record. So, um, you know, it's it's like every other band and I suppose everybody's in the same boat. But how has it affected you guys um, I think the, the commonality is we had lots of great tours planned and uh, gigs planned, and they've all been either cancelled or moved. We were supposed to be playing shows with Meshuggah and Devin Townsend, excuse me, last summer. And we were also touring with Apocalyptica at the time here in Finland. Uh, all of that got cancelled and pushed back. The, the Apocalyptica dates have now been moved to next year already. We had a tour planned with Apocalyptica and Epica in Europe, which has been pushed back to um, early 2022. And um, we'd also planned to record this album in a much shorter space of time to account for our first planned US tour, which was going to happen last April and May. Um, but that actually was cancelled before COVID. Uh, we had trouble getting a visa for, um, for our new members because uh, apparently, unless you've been in a band for a year, it's incredibly hard to get them a visa. Uh, so uh, we'd already spent a lot of money on this visa application and uh, ran into these, these problems and... We just couldn't get it quick enough and the other band we were going to tour with swallowed the sun they're friends of ours and we've said look we we don't want to put you in this position we, we can't guarantee they're going to be able to come on the tour i think it's appropriate we pull out and of course covid happened and the whole thing was cancelled anyway but that was um that was another whole thing so with that in mind the we were planning to have the album finished by the beginning of april and i think even if we'd aimed for that we would have ended up um, postponing it because it just wouldn't have been ready but it really gave us some time to um, to really reinvestigate and kind of get more distance out of the ideas we had. Because, I mean, even before we went on our headline tour last February in Europe, we had some some really great ideas. I had most of the instrumentals done for Dissipating, Movement, Hyperion, Resident Human and Ascend. I've been writing here in my home studio and most of that I've come up with myself and I shipped it off to the band. Uh, we, we reworked a lot of the parts. Somebody had some really great ideas for the for the verse part in Ascends, and Aki had some really good suggestions for the bass, and we were working like that, bouncing the shit around. Fugue and Old Earth were kind of more last minute, but especially the vocals. We got to last summer, and in all honesty, I had a complete burnout. I've, I've had um, clinical depression in the past, and I've been um, I've, I've been seeing a, a therapist throughout this whole maybe past two years now. And uh, it wasn't until I went to have an appointment and I explained my kind of how I was feeling. And she said, yeah, you, you're having a burnout. Just to, you know, take some time off, get your shit together and try again was the, the outcome we, we came to. But I'm so, so glad that I went through that experience because that was when I read Hyperion Kentos, which I'm, I'm sure you want to ask me about at some point based on how these other interviews have gone. <laughs> we'll talk about it then and uh, your approach to, to songwriting in general. I think uh, I always start off with the music first, just because I think it sets a mood and a tone. And um, I might have an idea of kind of 
something broad. Like I knew that movement was going to be angry. And just the, this is me venting my frustration with society was how that felt from when, when I first wrote the song. And I was trying to write something really, really compact, really chaotic and aggressive. And um, I think that's definitely come out in the, in the final version. It, it's very fast. It's very intense. And despite how organized it is rhythmically, um, we weren't too strict with the playing. You know, it, it definitely breathes in, a, in the tempo and in and how we're hitting the instruments. Um, but by comparison, I think Dissipating and Hyperion both had this feeling of being very expensive and um, almost uh, they had moments almost of this transcendental vibe to them. And we wanted something like that to be uh, as part of the lyrics. And uh, like I mentioned right at the start of the interview, like, I'm really bothered about sincerity and authenticity. So we didn't want to force it and just kind of um, make up some bullshit to try and um, adapt to the, to the music. We needed the right song to fit. And just at the right time, I read Hyperion Kentos by Dan Simmons, which for those who don't know, is a science fiction series of four books. And um, it, it's very heavily influenced by, by the real world. There's stuff about poetry and uh, I guess being an artist and releasing arts, there's stuff about philosophy and spirituality. But the, the two themes that really spoke to me were in dissipating that's a song about the indifference of the universe and um just coming to terms with that really because i think if you consider uh, our cosmic irrelevance and the fact the universe seems so hostile there's something deeply frightening about that uh, it's the second you leave earth you know you're, you're in this freezing vacuum and uh, if you go to the sun you're going to burn to death um if you think about how fast galaxies are moving apart from each other, we're possibly trapped in our corner of the universe forever. And all of it just seems very hostile and, and kind of makes you feel quite nihilistic about um, the, the, the wider cosmos. And um, I think that was how I was feeling during this burnout. And, and when I read this, this book, it kind of offers a solution to that and a way to reconcile that. And I think it's, uh, it's a question of gratitude. I think once we realize that, you separate um, the expect. There is no expectation from the cosmos for us to be anything or do anything. So everything we experience and go through, um, because we don't deserve it, it's infinitely valuable and wonderfully significant. You know, everyone that gives a fuck about us, every good experience we have, every choice we make, it's all we're ever going to have. So suddenly that starts to matter a lot. Uh, and like I said before, the word gratitude. I think the result of that is just to feel so grateful that we get to be here for any of it despite the absurdity of the times we're in and, and whatever else is going on in the world around us. And uh, the song Hyperion, I think that comes to a conclusion in, um, in a slightly different way. That one's more about mortality and specifically the idea that all of us are on this train journey from birth to death. None of us can control the speed of the train and we can't speed it up or slow it down. We, we can't, um, but we're barely even aware we're doing it. We have this illusion when we're sitting still that time is standing still as well. And of course it isn't, it's always the, the third wheel is driving us along at the same time. And I think um, I just started to become aware that I want to be more empathetic towards people going through this journey because this, ex this existential crisis I've been having and this um, trying to come to terms with the fact that eventually I won't exist anymore. And at one point, no one will remember me and everyone I've ever loved will die. You know, how do you come to terms with that? And it, it sounds pretty bleak, but actually I think it's, just like with the previous song, I think it means that everything good that ever happens to us, because it's all we're ever going to know, as far as we know, um, is, is loaded with this extra significance, the fact that people care about us and we, and I get to make fucking awesome music with a, a group of people I really like. Um, 
that that means something and um i think i found a lot of peace in that and uh if you think our teenagers when we were teenagers how disconnected you are from this notion that you're going to die one day i'm sure that's equally different if we live long enough to be 80 and so i'm sure death and life look very different when you get to that end of life too um, but just trying to have a bit more understanding for the fact that uh, we're all on this same journey and we should take care of each other that's kind of the outcome hey man that's that's uh really well said and uh i think it i think it proves uh you know what we've been talking about with the record that it is uh it's a really deep really intense record with a lot of uh really great songs really great um messages uh i'm a big fan of the record i'm a big fan of the band and uh i i think everybody needs to check this out uh, a couple of singles are out right now as we're recording this movement video which i said is is amazing just watching that it's the, one of the most intense videos you'll ever see and uh hyperion is out as well as a single and the album comes out on march 26th uh thanks man great to meet you and great to talk to you and good luck with the record Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And sorry for going on. I tend to do that. <laughs> Not a problem at all, man. All right. Take it easy. Take it easy. Thank you. Right, take Bye. care. Thanks to James for the interview. Don't forget the new album from Wheel, Resident Human, is out on March 26th. We're going to close with the lead single. This is Movement. For upcoming news and interviews, please check theprogreport.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Prog Report on Twitter and Instagram. Download the podcast on all our podcast networks. And check us out on YouTube. See you again soon. Thanks.
Bye. 